By the time my book launches, I'll have recorded 45 podcast interviews. Whoa. <laughs> That's insane. I know. Yeah. It's part of my... Wow. Yeah. <laughs> this is Van Collar. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I am joined by a relationship expert, a true Carrie Bradshaw in this city. She is the founder of Renew Breakup Bootcamp, a retreat that takes a scientific and spiritual approach to healing the heart. She is also the editor-in-chief of Heart Hackers Club, an online magazine that focuses on the psychology behind love, lust, and desire. She's been featured on Good Morning America, Vogue, Glamour, Nightline, and the front page of the New York Times. Her book, Breakup Bootcamp, The Science of Rewiring Your Heart, will be released on December 1st, 2020, so get it wherever you get your books. If you are Vancouver AF, you know her from the Ask Amy column she did for 24 Hours Newspaper. From 2007 to 2014, she is here. She is Amy Chan. Amy. Hello. How are you? I'm good. It is so nice to see you. (laughs) Thanks for having me. You were in high demand. I put out a tweet and I said, you know, who's the relationship expert in Vancouver? And then your name came up so many times. And then I saw your Twitter. I'm like, she's in New York. Give me a Vancouverite. But you're here. I'm here. Yeah. (laughs) Loving Vancouver. Welcome back. Thank you. And so you grew up in Vancouver. Yeah. Born and raised. Had a stint in New York. Mm -hmm. Made it big. (laughs) Tried. (laughs) And now you're back home. And now I'm back home. I love it. Well, this is one of my favorite topics. The very first episode of This is Van Color was about dating. And not to brag or anything, but I spent a few weeks this summer doing various media to talk about dating during COVID. So this was like my beat for a couple of weeks. Yeah. And it is because I find this realm so fascinating, especially as I come out of a relationship, which I just have. So we're going to really get into it. Okay. (laughs) There's always that introspective moment where you think about what went wrong, where you reassess what are you looking for, where you are in your life, where you want to be, your habits, your insecurities. And so what's interesting is that your relationship framework starts not necessarily from a blank slate, because no one really is a blank slate, but you start from a place of heartbreak and a place from where you need healing. Is this because people generally look to quote unquote dating advice once they come out of an unsuccessful relationship? I think a breakup or a separation or divorce is an opportune time for someone to shake out of their habits and patterns because human beings are very resistant to change. And so even though they might be in a relationship that they're not satisfied in, or maybe it's toxic, the thought of change can be so overwhelming that they just stay with what they know. They stay with what's familiar. And so when a breakup happens, 
I'm actually very excited for someone because I think. Well, well you're selling books, so of course you would be excited. But I get it. Aside from the selling the books, is a breakup is a shakeup. You sometimes need to redirect your life, mm. and and this is the time where you're finally jumping off that treadmill mm. for that that just maybe just a few weeks maybe a few months and like you just said you get introspective you look at your own patterns and your behaviors and your values and what you didn't want and what you do want and so i think that this is fertile ground this is like you know soil where you can plant the seeds of like what do you want to grow i love that and when i think about my own life and i think about breakups that i've had there's a lot of things that I did afterwards or even travel that I did afterwards that I would have never done if I was still in that relationship. So in retrospect, you know, I, I see what you're saying and I'm like, yeah, I'm glad that happened because it was a shakeup and I needed that shakeup at that time for whatever reason. So, you know, obviously there weren't pleasant feelings involved with breaking up, but it ended up working out for me and it probably ended up working out for that other person as well. Let's start from the beginning with this, though. Let's say I'm out of another relationship, as I am. It didn't work out. Where do I begin fresh off of a breakup? Usually I go to the food and the Netflix, but what should I actually be doing? So it's interesting because research shows that on average, men and women actually deal with breakups differently. Mm -hmm. And so women have a tendency to dive right into the feelings mm. and they might go to therapy. They'll talk to their friends. They really just marinate in the ups and the downs, mostly the downs. And what happens is they move through and they process the pain. Mm -hmm. What happens a lot with men uh, is a tendency to suppress and avoid and distract from feeling <laughs> the feelings. And so what I've also seen a lot is um, the man will jump into another relationship mm. a lot faster than the woman will, or they'll go right onto the dating apps, even though you know the separation has been really fresh. Sure. And what happens is the, the pain doesn't just magically disappear. Uh, it stays in you and mm. uh, it eventually does come back out and whether it is coming out in the next relationship you're having or you finally realize what happened and then you process it later and you break down or you miss your ex and by then that person's processed it and has moved on right and so huh. for for anyone listening man women whatever um the very first thing you want to do is you want to detox from your ex. And I mean physically, I mean social, I mean remove them off your Instagram, all of that. Hmm. And the reason being is when you're with someone, you have neural pathways that have been wired together. And so every time you made breakfast in the morning, had sex, even got in a fight and then had makeup sex, you're getting flooded with chemicals, right? Namely dopamine and oxytocin and vasopressin. Right. After a breakup, even on a cognitive level you know that it's over your body doesn't your body's like wait give me give me that feeling give me the soothing give me the feel-good chemicals give it to me now hmm. and if you do not actually detox and go through that uncomfortable stage of withdrawal you don't allow those neural pathways to prune away and you instead every time you just call them back up and you maybe even yell at them or you scroll their instagram <laughs> feed or you reread the text messages you're just strengthening those old neural pathways wow i never thought of it that way that's 
incredible. Yeah. So there's science behind why you should really try to detox from your ex. And for some people who can't because they have children or maybe pets, um, my advice to you is to try to keep the interactions as as Just neutral. give them the children. <laughs> yeah. Just take them. <laughs> <laughs> um, keep the interactions as neutral as possible because right. you don't want emotional charge. You don't want to, whether you have good news and you want to share it with them because you're used to celebrating with them right. or you're angry and you want to berate them. Both of them are giving you a chemical fix. Both of them are giving you a charge and that charge is get, keeping you hooked on your ex. So you made this distinction in general between men and women how men will kind of avoid their feelings, but women will get right into it. What are the pitfalls of getting right into your feelings? Because obviously you have this boot camp, so it doesn't mean that, you know, just getting into your feelings or going to therapy or talking to friends works. What are the pitfalls with just doing it that way? I think learning how to manage our emotions is such an important skill. And I I know for me, I never was taught this in my education. I was taught mm-hmm. how to dissect frogs, not how to deal with anxiety before it turns into a panic attack. Right. And so um, I think learning how to process your emotions in a healthy way is really important. And number one thing is to not label and judge your emotions as good or bad. It's very easy to say that the emotions are uncomfortable or bad. And, and then there's a sense of shame that happens. And there's a sense of, well, you should just get over it and get out of it. Right. These emotions are really important because they're actually, they're lessons or messages or telling you something. When you feel something, it is your, your body's way of telling you like, listen here, pay attention. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think that we should judge ourselves for feeling the feels, but I also don't think that we should ruminate and go into, you know, these spirals. And so, um, one of the things I would suggest is put, putting things in your calendar that you can look forward to because that will actually give you that sense of anticipation and some Mm. dopamine. And you have to think about after a breakup, you're in withdrawal. Think of your ex like they're your drug dealer, right? You are going to be craving- Some exes might be drug dealers. (laughs) And they might be, (laughs) literally. Um, You might be craving, well, you will be craving these chemicals that you used to get from the relationship. And so if you're not- strategic and proactive with creating a strategy of how you're going to get all these different needs met that were once met within the relationship, what do you think you're going to do with that time? You're going to spiral. You're going to think about your ex. You're going to ruminate. You're going to go into the should haves, which is totally, totally, you know, going to increase your amount of suffering. Yeah. So wait, is this why I eat my feelings? Because I'm trying to get like a dopamine rush? Uh, it's a coping mechanism. Wow. So it's a way, we all have different ways of soothing. Huh. A, a lot of times this is what we learned as a child. So some people deal with their emotions by withdrawing, that they were taught that emotions were unsafe. Maybe they mm. were scolded when they cried or they were told they were weak. Um, some people turn to food. Some people turn to sex. Some people turn to drugs. Um, some people turn to actually they get addicted to the feelings of sadness and pain and they Hmm. recreate the scenarios over and over again on a subconscious level. Interesting. So specifically, I mean, I've sort of brought up the food thing. You've brought up avoiding your feelings. You've brought up looking at your feelings, but maybe judging your feelings. What are some of the other mistakes that people make right out of a breakup? Mm, That's a great question. 
a lot of things include, I think maybe one of the top ones is really living in a fantasy about the relationship. And this mm. can go both ways. Either you're in a fantasy of having hope that things might change or things could have changed. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, or, I've been there. <laughs> or you're not, yeah, or you're not accepting, you're, you're prolonging your state of denial. Yeah. Um, and denial is part of the stages of a separation. Uh, it's a very first, you know, you go into shock and then you go into denial. Mm -hmm. uh, it's your way, your body's way of kind of tempering with the new reality and not totally overwhelming you but if you stay in a state of denial um you're you're not in reality okay and so i think getting real with the relationship is over and then diverting that energy from your ex and vilifying the ex or blaming mm. the ex or going out with your friends and bashing the ex all of that is keeping you in relationship with the ex and so redirecting that focus and that energy into other things that light you up because before the relationship there were so many things that you probably were doing and you probably you know maybe stopped doing after you became a we mm -hmm. right and so going back into those things and creating a fantasy that empowers you versus this disempowering fantasy of what should have been what could have been or i'm at this age and i wanted children by now and you know they took the best years of my life right. that causes this suffering and it keeps you stuck in a loop so you run these breakup boot camps, and I know we're in the age of COVID, so you're running them virtually now. Obviously, the people, and I'm assuming obviously, but maybe you can correct me, the people that come to these breakup boot camps, they are coming out of a breakup. Not all of them. Not all of them. Okay, no. fair enough. So, yeah. but but you've categorized it as like a breakup boot camp, right? So they're if they're not fresh out of a breakup, are they in the middle of a, like, what does that mean? Yeah. So everyone thinks that they're coming there because of an ex. It's never just about the ex. It's recycled pain. And they all realize that once they get into day one. Okay. Um, so I would say about 50% are fresh out of a breakup. And I mm -hmm. mean, probably a month. Wow. Um, or two. I, my signups come in pretty late. Um, <laughs> and some are in a relationship still and they can't get out. Wow. Uh, often they are dating someone who uh, displays characteristics of narcissism or uh, narcissist personality disorder. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they're single and they just want to understand what are their relationship patterns and they want to start changing their outcomes. Okay. Most of them have gone through therapy for a long time and have hit a wall. So describe your boot camp then. How long is it? What are you doing? Do they have to do prep work? Is there work afterwards? How does it all work? Yeah, so uh, it's four days and we take a holistic approach to healing the heart. And um, day one, they arrive and everyone arrives before they come. The prep work is they, they have all these writing exercises and one of them is to write their story. Mm -hmm. And so they have to write out their entire story of what happened and, and what they're feeling pain about. And the very first exercise we do is we teach them how to tell their story without re-traumatizing themselves because our bodies can't tell the difference between what's happened in the past in the present and the future. They can't? No. So if I was to recall the story right now of my breakup from, you know, 10 years ago and the horrific scene of the fight and this, and I was a, to associate into the memory, I would probably start to cry. And oh, my, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. yeah I would feel okay. the, the, 
the, the feelings of it. Like my body would be producing the cortisol and the adrenaline and all that stuff. So right. what happens is after breakup, a way to soothe is to tell the story. But what happens is every time you tell the story, the story's changing a little bit. Your memories are changing yeah. like a game of telephone, right? Yeah. And so human beings are prone to what's called cognitive distortions. They are these thinking traps, whether it is black or white thinking, uh, when you say always, never, like this always happens to me, I'm never gonna find love, or you're caught in shoulds, um, you generalize, maybe you got cheated on so you think everyone's untrustworthy mm -hmm. so human beings are prone to this so we then sh teach them all these different uh cognitive distortions and then we have each person go back into their story and rewrite their story now only into five points so they go from 10 points to five points and then they have to hmm. now take away all of the interpretations and the assumptions and the thinking traps and circle all of them and then they see like, oh my gosh, like how many cognitive distortions were in their original story. And then they they all share their story, just the five points. And they, they do realize the difference between how much less it's emotionally charged when they strip away the interpretation and stick to the facts. Hmm. And that is part of the theme of the entire weekend is reframing the story because we are a product of the stories that we believe and it is a process um, that requires taking that story and kind of shifting it and revisiting and reframing it and that is one of the tools of resilience and then throughout the weekend we have 13 different experts um, we bring in an anxiety coach a love addiction coach uh, we have a cognitive behavioral therapist mm. a psycho um a psychotherapist, an energy healer, um, a dominatrix, a sex educator, uh, you know, there's Wait, there's how do I sign up for this? I know. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so do you get private sessions with all those experts or is it a group so session? So they're group sessions and then people can choose to do um, one or two private sessions during cool. their free time there. Wow. Yeah. And you were telling me, I think before we started recording, 25 people yeah, 25 people, um, and we've been holding them in upstate New York and in California, and now virtually. How does it work virtually? So it's still three days. It's um, the Breakup Bootcamp Online Intensive, and while we don't have you know, the gathering spots, um, we still do from like breath work. We have the mm. different sessions with all the different experts and it's really impactful. And I've actually had people say, um, you know, people who are more introverted much prefer the online version because mm. they feel a bit more safer to be doing it in the comfort of their home versus in a group setting. Yeah. So even when uh, we're able to gather safely and I have the physical retreats, I'll continue to do the virtual retreats. Yeah. So just so I'm clear, it sounds like obviously there's a lot of work being done from a lot of different angles with these different experts, but the main thread line is starting with your story and then being able to come out with effectively the same story, but taking out the bad habits or the um, thought exercise, like the, the, bad thought spirals you get into? How would you describe yeah, sort of I mean, the beginning and end? I think my greatest intention for the women who come are, you come in with one story and you leave with another. Mm. And one that you truly believe, not one you're just kind of playing lip service to, but throughout you're learning. But one that is also truer as opposed to letting true, your yes, imagination truer, and interpretations go wild. Yes, right? truer and more helpful. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, throughout there is, it's not just the story about your ex, right? Like mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's compound trauma. The relationship that 
that falls apart is usually just the band-aid that got ripped off. And then you're dealing with not only the breakup, but the ex before that, and then your mm. relationship with your parents, right? So we do a lot in discovering what are the subconscious beliefs and patterns that are kind of there in the underbelly, like the foundation of the programming. And uh, how do we rewire that? And we go through these exercises to help people actually rewire their limiting beliefs. Yeah. And um, yeah. so one thing I'm imagining is someone starts with this story and it's going to be all this flowery language and drama and, you know, all this passion in the story. And then they kind of end up with a story that's a lot more bland, but perhaps more helpful. Is that I, fair? I, I think a lot more neutral, neutral. And, and more reality based. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let's say you've come out of the breakup, you've done this self-awareness, this analysis, you've even gone through your boot camp. What is the mindset or what point should I be at personally to start seriously dating again or even start casually dating again, I guess? That's a great question. I think if you are dating as a way to distract and avoid emotions, I wouldn't do it. Then you're not ready. Um, I think if you are in a state of mind where you can go on a date and you're not going to come home and feel destroyed because you haven't met your person or mm. they're not as cute as your ex, um, you know, if that's the case, then and you might have to test it once to see where you're actually at, mm. um, then I would say you're not ready and you need more time to actually heal, right? Like if you broke your leg and you had a cast on it, you might not run a marathon the minute you take the cast off, right? So yeah. like the broken heart for some reason in North America, we don't deal with it the same way we would when we, you know, hurt our our limbs. And so I would just proceed with caution and you have to check in with yourself. Like there isn't this one Th this one amount of time, right? Like mm -hmm. from my experience witnessing people go through breakups, I would say that the emotional intensity that follows a breakup usually starts to subside in the six to eight week mark. Mm. Um, but I don't know if immediately after that, that means you're ready for the world again, right? Um, because you can spiral back into, you know, um, this emotional roller coaster if you're still fresh from from healing that wound. Yeah. So you brought up some good telltale signs when you're not ready. If you have these really grandiose expectations of the next one's going to be the one, or you're still comparing people you're meeting to your ex, are there any other telltale signs that maybe you're not ready to start dating again? Um, I think that it's normal to have a little bit of of anxiety about dating again. Mm -hmm. And I've worked with people who have never really dated. They've been married for 20 years or 30 mm. years, right? And so it's important to differentiate, is it is it anxiety because you're about to do something uncomfortable or is it anxiety because um, you're really in a state where you're not ready? Mm. And really like the only way you can know that is to just you know, check in with yourself and, and, you know, see where your bodily sensations are and differentiate. But if you find that it's just, you know, a little uncomfortable because you're not sure of the outcome, then yeah, go, go test it out. What's the worst mm -hmm. that can happen? And those two things can be hard to differentiate sometimes. For right? sure. Yeah. 
<laughs> because especially when it's something new or you haven't done it in a while, being uncomfortable is something that naturally people would want to run away from, right? So they yeah. might say, oh, I'm not ready, but it's just the actual act of dating again. Yeah. Yeah. So much of dating is knowing what you want and knowing what you can give to a partner as well. How do we know, I should actually rephrase this, how do we look for the right partner? And I guess the flip side to this question, so we can really delve into this, how do we look for the right partner and why am I choosing the wrong people to begin with? Hmm. Well, let me... Oh, that's fine. Yeah, no worries. Let me start with why do we choose the wrong people, and then we'll go from there. We I, we develop what I call um, a chemistry compass. And basically, if we grew up with a very healthy model of what love looks like and feels like, and we had experiences that really kind of mirrored that, then our chemistry compass is in working order. And when you meet someone and you feel chemistry and it's healthy, like, great. But, you know, I mean, I have a breakup boot camp. I work with most people who have a broken chemistry compass. <laughs> and and so, I, and I think it's important to differentiate. You are not broken. Your chemistry compass might be broken. Mm, gotcha. And if you grew up with, a, with an unhealthy model of what love looks like and feels like, human beings like what is familiar. So you're going to be drawn with people who can wound you in a very similar way to how you're wounded as a child or in mm. your early experiences. And so if you are looking at your dating outcomes and you're finding that the last few relationships you've had are kind of coming out with the same outcome and you're not happy, you're not satisfied with the results, this is an indicator that your chemistry compass probably needs some work. And so um, I think first looking at that and second is understanding that sometimes we are drawn to people who are unavailable or who might not be investing in us and we might glorify them and think that they're these amazing people. Um, but what we're not aware of is that we're just kind of privy to these kind of psychological phenomenons and one is called intermittent uh, reinforcement and this is um the the theory that basically we actually get uh you know a higher jolt of dopamine when we don't know when the reward is going to come. Right. Okay. Yeah. And they've done this test <laughs> many times. So like, this is like not texting back right away. And yeah. That, that so, idea, right? so yeah. unpredictability huh. can get us hooked and they've done experiments. Um, one is the famous rat experiment where they put rats in a cage and they have um, a lever. And every time the rat presses the lever, it gets a pellet of food, right? This is um, consistent reinforcement, yeah. nothing, no big deal. And then the experimenters are like, well, let's see what happens if sometimes the food comes out when they press the lever, but sometimes it doesn't. And what they found were um, the rats actually became completely obsessed with pressing the lever. That's all they were doing. They started to ignore their grooming. They started to deteriorate. And <laughs> really? they just kept pressing the lever because sometimes they would get it and they wow. would get such a jolt of dopamine. Like when gambling. They, exactly. Huh. It's exact same um, theory that's used of, of why slot machines are the most profitable part of a casino. It's the same thing it's the same Whoa. thing when someone is breadcrumbing you and giving you just a little bit of attention liking you just a little bit but never enough and you're constantly left in a in a state of starvation and so that might mean you know people say like oh but they're so ma no if they're 
if you are feeling this angst and so much uncertainty and so self-conscious in this dating dynamic or relationship, they're not amazing for you. Hmm. It doesn't mean matter if they're amazing in isolation. I don't care if they, you know, rescue dogs on the weekend. They're, I'm sure they're great people, but yeah. if they're the, this dynamic is causing you to feel this way, it it requires you to seriously look at what's going on. And if it's a cycle, then you either have to decide, do you pause if it's a pattern? Is it just a blip and you pause and you kind of reassess? Or is it a pattern? And if it's a pattern, then you need to step out. So if you're in that pattern, like someone who is addicted to gambling or like those rats that are addicted to the the button that where the pellet of food might come out or might not come out. How do you break yourself out of that cycle? Because you're addicted, right? Like I assume there's some overlap with addiction. Yeah. So how do you break that cycle when oftentimes you feel powerless to feeling attracted to that person or that type of person? Yeah. Great question. I think part of it is understanding and really believing and knowing that the emotional discomfort is not going to last forever. Mm. And so when we are in a state of withdrawal, we think it's going to last forever. We think that this discomfort is so painful that right. we're just going to die. <laughs> well, you're not going to die. And and they've done some research that shows that in about 20 to 30 minutes, your craving subsides. So find, you know, be, again, be, set yourself up for success. Create a list of go-to things that you can do that take 20 to 30 minutes that fe- feed you with feel good chemicals hot, you know healthy dopamine that might be um you go for a run and you get endorphins that might mean you see your friends that might mean you reread an email that your sister sent you that's super loving mm. right like that might mean you just put on dance music and you dance for 20 minutes and just train yourself to instead of every time you're feeling that pang of withdrawal and the anxiety instead of reaching out for that drug train yourself to reach out for something that lights you up and wow. in the few first few times it might not work you're like okay i'm just gonna get the cookie i'm just gonna go text my ex whatever it is. But <laughs> if you continue to do this, you create these new neural pathways. And the more you keep at it, the more you strengthen those new neural pathways. Right. If it's between the cookie or texting your ex, should you eat the cookie? Eat the cookie. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I find this fascinating because I've never looked at it in this type of conditioning framework. I've certainly looked at coming out of a relationship and being introspective and, you know, trying new things or, or changing as a person, but not this, like, psychological conditioning that you have to do sometimes, depending on the relationship that you're just come out of. Yeah, it really helps when you understand what's going on with the mind and the body, because you realize you're actually not going crazy. And I... When I work with people, that's the very first thing I hear. Like, I feel like I'm going crazy. What's wrong with me? Mm-hmm. And that can bring so much shame when you're just going through really human experiences and understanding this can can arm you with the knowledge so that you can step out of these cycles and observe it when it's happening. And I know for me, like, I now can see like, oh, I'm that's a thinking trap. I'm doing that loop again. Okay, mm. cut, stop. 
And I've gotten really good at doing that. So I don't go into these spirals anymore. But in the beginning, um, I was doing it all the time. And it applies to all relationships. It applies to life, right? Um, so I think once you learn these tools of how to self-soothe, how to emotionally regulate, how to stop yourself from ruminating, how to separate fantasy from you know reality, you can carry these tools with you in all aspects of life. So one interesting thing you brought up was how we are attracted to people who give us this intermittent reward. We don't know when it's coming, mm-hmm. you know, hard to get, however you want to describe it. What are some other traits that are very common in terms of people looking for the wrong people that we are attracted to, but if we had a healthy chemistry compass, we would not be attracted to that type of person? One thing is that many people are confused about what love is. And it doesn't help that the moment we are born, we are watching you know, fairy tales and movies and love songs that all paint a picture that love is intense. Love is push and pull. Love is this Romeo and Juliet dramatic story where they kill themselves for love (laughs) after they met each other, I think like two times. I don't know. Absolutely crazy. But that is the model of love that we are almost fed into our veins through an IV drip. Mm. And so you take that and you couple that with say an upbringing where you know maybe you witnessed divorce or abuse or codependence or maybe you know your first love was um someone that treated you terribly right all these things are kind of molding you and giving you this idea of what love is and i think a lot of people equate intensity with love they equate anxiety with love they Mm -hmm. equate this high high low low i want to rip your clothes off and if it's not that then it's not love (laughs) and that's not love in in fact that's borderline love addiction and (laughs) codependence yeah and so um you know love is not there there's two different systems right so there's a pursuit of love and pursuit is what gives us dopamine um they've been doing research where dopamine actually isn't the pleasure chemical it's the anticipation chemical Mm. and so when we you know lock eyes with someone across a bar and we are interested that's when we're getting this dopamine there's anticipation that something amazing might happen Mm. right but then what happens is say you you know meet that person at the bar and then you go for many dates and then you date and then you live together and then you have children and it's five years in your brain isn't operating on that same hunting anticipation system right you know and if you are still in the storyline that love is exciting and it's about ripping each other's clothes off and it's (laughs) intense you are going to be sorely disappointed and that is why relationships have a tendency to end after the one year and two year mark Hmm. because research shows that that is the time when the chemical cocktail starts to subside it is actually not physically possible to keep up that chemical rush that you get in the romance passionate stage of love it more into something else when you are in partnership and so if you think that that passionate romance that you had in month three is what's going to be there in months three and 13 and you know year 13 um you're going to be disappointed wow what does a healthy chemistry compass look like or what does healthy love look like then so i i think that for uh, a relationship to have a foundation Uh, It requires three things. It requires chemistry, compatibility, and timing. And um, 
I think sometimes people weigh too much on the chemistry and, you know, they overlook values, which is a compatibility. And mm -hmm. the values and, is, and the compatibility is really the glue that's going to keep that relationship going once that romantic momentum starts to wear off. Mm -hmm. And so a healthy chemistry compass means that it's pointing you in the direction where you are meeting people and you're drawn to people who are healthy, who are secure, who have similar values. It's not this war that you have between your body and your mind, right? Mm -hmm. I work with a lot of people who in their head, they're like, I know this person's so bad for me. I know there's red flags, but everything in my body just wants this person. That is a major misalignment, right? When you are in a healthy relationship, what you say that you, that you want and you need is aligned with what you're feeling. There's isn't this huge disconnect, right? And and healthy love. <laughs> and I didn't know this until I've I actually got into a healthy partnership, and I realized most of my relationships I wasn't healthy, hmm. and so I didn't have any idea of what love was. I was operating so much on fear and wounding, and drawn to people who, you know, we were both strife with wounding patterns. And hmm. I now, what do you mean by that wounding pattern? So you know. I, the part of me that grew up with an unavailable father was just drawn to people who hmm. were totally unavailable and right. replicated this emotional experience I had growing up. And and for that person who was drawn to someone who was needy and maybe a little bit suffocating and always wanting their time and attention, you know, they were drawn to me that, you know, confirmed their worldview, right? Mm -hmm. We will create the reality that's going to confirm the belief systems that we have, whether we're conscious of it or subconscious of it. And so um, I just, you know, I equated intensity with love as well. And I thought that if I if I could chase someone, if I could convince someone to like me and love me, maybe I was worthy. And it really wasn't until I think I got myself into a pretty healthy place where I noticed the people I was drawn to and who was drawn to me started to change quite a lot. Hmm. And, you know, don't get me wrong. Um, Does that know, include friendships as well? Um, I think I've been pretty okay with friendships. Yeah. But this isn't, you know, for a lot of people, it's not, right? Because- I'm just wondering if if- you have this in your romantic life, in your dating life, does it translate to maybe you're also attracting the wrong type of people around you in your social circles? I think it's definitely very possible because your brain is being wired by who you surround yourself with on mm -hmm. a regular basis, even your nervous system. And I, I mean this not in like a Tony Robbins motivational way. I mean this as in you're actually, you know, your neural pathways of healthy connection are being formed by who you're around. Mm -hmm. So even if you are, you know, working 60 hour weeks and you're around a boss that's completely judgmental and, you know, emotionally abuses you, your neural pathways for trust are, you know, not healthy. Hmm. And so it does matter. Your entire tribe, your entire village does matter. It's not just your romantic relationships. Wow. So if everyone around you is toxic, it's probably likely that you're not going to choose a romantic partner that's going to be very healthy. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. <laughs> so you talked about these three elements, chemistry, compatibility and timing. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. So chemistry sounds like the attraction that you have to someone. Compatibility sounds like what's going to keep you together over the, the long haul once the excitement or the honeymoon phase kind of goes away. And timing just sounds like, is there the space to actually make this happen, right? Mm -hmm. Are you in this literally the same physical space? Are you both available? All that other stuff. Mm -hmm. 
does every relationship take that model where it does start out super exciting as we call like the honeymoon phase and then it kind of tapers out to a more lukewarm relationship like i'm just trying to figure out how a relationship a long-term relationship a successful long-term relationship looks in terms of excitement or how you're supposed to feel yeah so no it's not that you know it goes from this romantic honeymoon phase to this bland boring thing (laughs) it's that it goes from passionate this kind of stage of passion to companion love and um this is where you you accept your partner for their quirks and their flaws um, and everything included. And it's a deeper sense of bonding. Mm. Um, the, ma- the major chemical at play is no longer dopamine at this point. It's oxytocin and vasopressin. Hmm. These are bonding chemicals. Um, and are these stronger than dopamine? They're different chemicals. Okay. Um, dopamine is the chemical that happens in the lust phase. It's the, um, the pursuit chemical. Um, it's mother's nature's way of having you kind of zero in on someone and kind of go for it. And that's mm-hmm. why in the beginning you might be obsessive and you might like stay up all night just thinking about them or talking about to them, you know, and you can because you have this chemical reaction going on. And what happens is um, as you continue, it starts to shift, right? Like, again, you already have the cookie, right? Mm-hmm. You already have the relationship. So it's not about chasing that person anymore. Um, then it kind of turns into bonding and oxytocin starts to come up and vasopressin. And mm. um, th- these are the you know same chemicals that are secreted when a woman gives birth. She's actually, you know, a lot of oxytocin is, hmm. is given. Um, so it, it shifts. And it's not that you can't create excitement and adventure and romance in a long-term partnership. For sure, you can. Um, you can do this through novelty. You can do this through adventure. But when you are doing the same thing every single day and you think you know your partner 110% and there's no mystery, that's when the passion starts to sizzle. Yeah. And so you need to actually be proactive and intentional about how you can continue to have passion and novelty and adventure if you are going to be in a long-term partnership. So just so I make sure I understand this, you have to find different ways to stimulate that dopamine. Is that one way to look at it? Um, I don't know if it's to stimulate the dopamine. I think it's, yeah, I mean. Uh, I'm just trying to think of a situation where, and I'm sure this happens a lot in terms of cheating, where there is someone who is very happy with the companionship they have, but they're kind of missing, and they always say that they're missing this excitement, and that's why they end up you know, cheating on their partner. Right. So are they seeking out dopamine? What, Like, what's the reason where you have these people who say, you know, they're very happy with their companionship, but they're cheating. And, yeah. And, and cheating in a way where that's not acceptable in the relationship, not an open relationship is what right. I mean. Right, yeah. Um, I would say that you're, you're, you're kind of – we're living in bodies that are from the prehistoric ages, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's going to cause you to 
um, want things that you don't necessarily need, right? Mm-hmm. You're walking down the street and you smell amazing cookies, but you're, you know, doing this intermittent fasting thing. You know, you're like, oh, I really want this cookie. Like that's dopamine at play, this anticipation, mm. like, oh, maybe. It's not that you need it. It's not that you need it to survive, but that you want it, right? That's your your reward circuit and your motivational pathways kind of firing. And so when you're talking about you know, people who want that excitement again in their relationships. I think cheating is a way of not dealing with a problem. Hmm. And so instead of looking into the relationship and exploring how that they could spice things up or how they can get certain needs met and and compromise or whatever that is, instead they just avoid dealing with it and they cheat, right? And there's many ways of avoiding, right? You might cheat, you might, uh, maybe you don't even physically cheat, but you completely withdraw from the relationship. There's all Mm. these ways of just not dealing with the problem. Mm Mm-hmm. One thing I've heard from women is that they'll meet a guy and they'll end it by saying that the guy's too nice. And I actually had a friend say this about one of her exes where she said, ah, he was just like a golden retriever. Like he was so fun, but it wasn't, there wasn't anything there. And I, I don't know. I found that kind of weird. I mean, I've also been in a situation where I've, you know, being with someone nice but didn't wasn't feeling the chemistry or anything like that. What's wrong with just a nice guy is or a nice girl? Is is there a, something in the chemistry missing? Is is there something that's like like in a healthy compass chemistry compass shouldn't nice be like attractive i don't know totally right so there's two things to there's a few things to unpack here one is i think sometimes we think what is categorized as nice is actually not nice so um give me an example give you an example uh i'll use myself i am a recovering over a giver i used to give Mm. all the time and on the outside it looked like i was giving a gift right whether it was a favor or an actual gift or acts of service it looked like i'm giving a present but where did that actual gift come from uh it was coming from a place of um, control because as long as i was giving i was showing that it was indispensable and it came from a root belief that i'm not enough it was coming from a place of not getting vulnerable and being afraid of vulnerability because when you are actually only giving and you're not receiving you aren't you're actually not in relation you're not bonding Hmm. and so Um, It was in also a reaction to um, an insecurity of just not being enough. And so in order to prove that I was worthy, I would be giving and um, submissive or I would edit myself or be over accommodating and over pleasing. So on the outside, someone might be like, so nice, right? Right. But something feels off. Yeah. And I, you know, like, and then vice versa, I'm sure you've ever received a gift and you're like, something just feels off. Even though it's wrapped up in the perfect bow, energetically, where that gift was coming from was coming from a place of scarcity and lack and fear. Mm. And so I, I want to just differentiate that because sometimes what looks like as nice and someone people pleasing, that's actually not giving you energy. It's actually taking a deposit because it's not coming from a place of abundance. Right. So, you know, if you though are meeting people who are kind, 
And I say kind, not nice, because kind is, I feel more sincere. It's not kind of faking it to, you know, please you. Mm -hmm. um, and they're healthy and they're secure and they're intentionally interested in dating you. And you're like, oh, I'm not into you. I'm into this, you know, DJ club owner over here <laughs> that only likes me at 3 a.m. <laughs> then yes, there is a problem with your chemistry compass. Yeah. And the thing huh. is, you're not going to go from... If your chemistry compass is broken, it's been pointing you in the direction of, say, the bad boy or the bad girl, whatever you want to label it. Mm -hmm. You're not going to go from, you know, zero to 100. You don't go from that to the most loving, stable, secure partner. Because, again, human beings are drawn to what's familiar. Mm. So if you're familiar with this chase of someone who doesn't give you the time of day, and then maybe on Friday at, you know, 10 o'clock p.m. when they have nothing better to do, then they pop into your IGs and DMs you, <laughs> sup, right? If you, you know, like, you need to actually build up your tolerance of what healthy looks like and feels like. Yeah. And so my suggestion, and I did this on myself, I did a dating experiment on myself because my chemistry compass was really broken and i was like okay i'm just gonna be open-minded and i'm going to say yes and go out on dates with people who appear to be healthy secure and intentionally actually want to date me mm -hmm. and even when i was online dating i would start swiping on people i would normally not swipe on mm -hmm. i started dating outside of my type and you know it took seven months and many dates with different people it's like this chemistry compass experiment is not working so like, what was the experiment where were you what were you trying to find out i was trying to see if i could change my chemistry compass okay so i started changing the types of people i was going on dates with and that didn't change it well here's a kicker so one of the people i you know hung out with from the very beginning i wasn't attracted to them this person um his name is carter in the book and i knew i wasn't attracted so i just said straight out, i didn't want to lead him on i was like hey you know i'm not interested in you romantically but if you want to hang out as homies like i'm cool and he's like like it's like you know you're an awesome person i just want to get to know you as a human being as a friend that's totally fine so there's no pressure i would hang out with him every so often while i was still doing this dating experiment mm -hmm. and i in about seven months i remember this one moment we were having dinner and i remember looking across the table i was like oh like you're handsome I'm like, what the fuck? And I Carter. realized I was romantically drawn to him. So what happened? Um, a few things happened. One is my dating experiment did work because what was going on with all these other people was I was actually building my reserve for what healthy love looked like and felt like. Yeah. It was built. Oh, I'm like, oh, this is how it feels like when someone like actually likes you and follows up. Oh, this is how it feels like when someone's into you. And so it was building up this tolerance is familiarity hmm. and again human beings are drawn to what is familiar and then i got to know his character and um his values and while you know love can actually be sparked by any of the three mating drives there's lust there's attraction and there's attachment and they're driven by different uh, chemicals. And the story we see is like, it's always lust. You meet someone, you feel chemicals and then you, you know, go into this kind of dating dance and relationship, mm -hmm. but it can actually also be sparked by other mating drives. And so I was developing an attachment to Carter before the lust came in. 
And mm. then I got to know him as a human being and I didn't cognitively process that it was romantic attraction. All I knew when I hung out with him was I enjoyed spending time with him and I wanted to see him again. I had fun. Mm. That was it. I didn't think of it, oh, it's romantic. I never, it didn't occur to me. And then it took time for me to process like, oh, actually I'm attracted to this person. Yeah. Did it work out? It didn't. He's he's a good, really good friend of mine. Uh, we lived in different uh, cities, uh, okay. and ultimately, like I think we diff different timing and things like that. Yeah. Um. But yeah, he's a great guy, and he's actually still single. If any girls are out there, <laughs> amazing person. Oh, I'm gonna get a flood of emails. I'm sure. <laughs> Who's this Carter? <laughs> and he's in Vancouver. He's in San Francisco. Oh, oh no, he's in L.A. now. Well. <laughs> Cross, yeah, it's hard to cross the border right now. Yeah. So, sorry, fans of this is Van Keller. You also write about this idea of attachment theory, and I think we've sort of touched on it, but we haven't called it by name. So, what is attachment theory? So, attachment theory is by the age of around two years old, we develop an attachment system which will pretty much determine who we're drawn to romantically as adults. And At there's two. Yeah, around two years old. Wow. Yeah, and so there's three different types of attachment. They're secure avoidant and anxious and i'll just go over the summaries sure. of each so secure is about 50 percent of the population they're not afraid of intimacy they're not afraid of intimacy they're also not codependent they are able to communicate and express their needs and their boundaries and in the case there's a fight or you know a conflict in the relationship they don't turn it into this major dramatic catastrophe right then there's avoidantly attached people, and this is about 20% of the population. And these are people who uh, subconsciously suppress their attachment system. So they are able to be in relationships. They say they want to be in relationships. But what happens is when someone gets a little bit too close emotionally and a little bit too intimate, they will actually push them away. And they will squelch intimacy by doing what's called deactivation strategies. So this might mm -hmm. mean they might uh, go into a cave and withdraw and, and not talk to the person for a week after a romantic weekend self-sabotage sabotaging yeah, yeah. without knowing that they're doing this yeah. they might date someone in the first three months they're like amazing and then usually around the three month mark they're like noticing all the imperfections they're like no you're not the one but there there's constantly this unicorn because no one is ever the one right mm. and they might even idolize this past ex and be like the one that got away and compare people to them but these are all strategies of actually keeping people at an emotional distance interesting and again this is done on a very subconscious uh, level and so people often who have an avoidant attachment style don't know that they need help because they don't think that there's anything wrong they think it's uh, that they just haven't met the one and th that it's these people it's their fault stop throwing shade at me <laughs> take it easy <laughs> And then there's an anxious attachment style. And these are people who are uh, afraid of abandonment or rejection. And I mean mm. fundamentally afraid, meaning um, they are very quick to perceive an offset emotion. And when they um, get a sense that their connection with the person they're dating or the person they're in a relationship with is threatened, they actually um, have a very heightened nervous system and they kind of go into fight or flight. Mm -hmm. And they get anxiety and um, they will do what's called a protest behavior so they these are attempts to re-establish connection or get attention they might call it crazy or show up um or they might even punish the person so it takes 
you know, four hours for that person to text back. They're like, oh, fuck you. I'll take four days. See how you like it. Mm. They might even have so much anxiety about the person they're dating that they'll hedge and start dating other people just to take the edge off. Or um, they will react and uh, to the idea that they might get rejected and reject the other person first. And so mm. avoidance are drawn to anxious and anxious are drawn to avoidance. Oh, they're drawn to each other. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> I'm like going, going through my own personal history. I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> Are you an avoidant or an anxious or secure? I think I was probably anxious uh, in my 20s to some degree and then became an avoidant. I like to think I'm somewhat healthy now, but... Are you, you, know, can, are you more afraid stuff. that your uh, relationship will kind of suffocate you and take your freedom? Or are you more afraid that a relationship will leave you abandoned? At this point in my jaded life, I feel like I'm afraid of none of those things. Okay, great. <laughs> I'm just trying to live in the present, I think, for nice. the most part. Yeah. Cool. So that's why I think I've moved to that side. But, I, but as you were describing them, I've definitely been in those scenarios where mm -hmm. I've been that guy or recipient of that right. behavior yeah. for sure. Now, let's say I'm dating someone. How do I know that I found the right person? You don't. <laughs> you need time. Okay. <laughs> right? Do you I ever mean, really know? Um. I think you know if someone is the right fit for you, and mm -hmm. this can come at, in different times. I think if you are someone that has a history of jumping into relationships quickly, merging with your partner, maybe having codependent tendencies, mm. then I would say definitely take it slow and um, examine why you tend to merge with your own romantic partner so quickly. Mm -hmm. um, but you can only tell through time and life situations, Yeah. right? And so I think that getting to know someone and building trust and rapport is not something that can happen very, very quickly. You mm -hmm. can get an inkling about someone, um, but yeah, I would say take your time. Yeah. Prior to us meeting today in person, we discussed this idea of future tripping. Mm. And it was the first time anyone has really identified this idea, but I've definitely future tripped before. Can you explain what this is? Yeah. So future tripping is a, a term I made up and I write about it in my book. And it's this tendency for people to imagine this future with someone. And it happens a lot in the beginning of dating mm -hmm. where, so say you meet someone, you go on a date, it goes well. Um, and maybe on that date, they talked about, you know, they wanted to go to Bali. And then you go home from that date and you're like, oh my gosh, like, I've always wanted to retire in Bali. And then they might have said something about how much they love art. And one day when they retire, they want to have an art cafe. And you're like, oh my gosh, I'm an inner artist. I love painting. Right. And then between date one and date two, you've already lived out this you know, future with this person where you've opened an art cafe in Bali and had three kids and two villas. And But you've only been on two dates. Yeah. And so you go on this date two and yeah. that person is like on date two and you've lived 30 lifetimes with this person. Wow. And I mentioned this earlier in the podcast, your body can't tell the 
difference between what's happened in the past, the present, and the future. Hmm. So what do you think is happening when you are just daydreaming, fantasizing about this person in the future, and you're feeling amazing, and you're like imagining yourself like, you know, in the beaches of Bali, you're getting these chemicals. Yeah. <laughs> you're getting dopamine and oxytocin and all those feel-good chemicals. And so your chemicals are reacting as if you're living this reality that is not actually reality. Right. And so this can cause your feelings to skyrocket for this person. And and then the next time you see that person, they can sense there's something a little bit different. They can sense the power imbalance. Mm -hmm. And whether they're cognitive of it or not, and they might even step away. And it is a very natural tendency that when someone steps away and you want more of it, instead of like saying, oh, okay, I'm going to pause and just stop you like, oh, well, let me take two steps because they're not taking any steps. So I'll make up for their lack of steps and I'll just put my foot on the gas pedal and try harder. And what do you think that does? It, it pushes them away even further. And so future tripping is something that happens to the best of us. And we can future trip about a positive future with someone or we can future trip and like ruminate, right? And hmm. so I think for anyone listening, here's a really quick tool. If you catch yourself future tripping, what you want to do is you um, say the word stop, close your eyes, imagine a big red stop sign, and then you open your eyes and you start looking around and start listing off everything you're grateful for and why. Just keep listing. One, mm. two, three. I'm grateful for the walls. I'm grateful for the trees, blah, blah, blah. Keep going. And what In the present. In the present, yeah. right? You just keep listing it off. And not the not the art shop in Bali that you've been. Exactly. You, you look at what you notice around you. Yeah. And what happens is it kind of takes you, it's like squirrel, right? Like mm. it, it kind of takes your your brain off that other track about to go on that future trip and roller coaster and back into the present. And the first few times you do this, you're like, oh, it doesn't work. What's Amy talking about? But again, you're building those neural pathways. And the right. more you practice this, the better you're able to actually stop yourself from kind of going off into the past and into the future and staying in the present. Mm -hmm. I imagine that one of the pitfalls of future tripping is that you're also projecting this image of someone that might not actually exist. Like, especially yeah. if it's like two dates in. You don't know this person, but like you said, you've lived these lifetimes with your imagination yeah. of who this person is. Yeah, and you could put the person on a pedestal and right. like start to idolize them. And if you're doing that, then you might even be missing the red flags because we're going to see what we want to see. This is confirmation bias at play. Mm -hmm. So if you meet someone and you're like, oh my gosh, this is the soulmate, you know, um, I've always dreamed about the soulmate who wanted to retire in Bali, then you're going to find evidence that's going to prove it true. And then you're going to ignore the evidence like, oh, it doesn't matter that he's still married and, you know, still signing <laughs> the divorce papers, but it's five years, but it doesn't matter, right? Yeah. You'll start ignoring the other evidence that proves that what your belief is, is not true. Yeah. Yeah. And I understand that all of this is sort of grounding yourself in the present, but like, at what point do we call it future tripping? Because sometimes just being excited for a date or if you're going to like a show or a concert, you know, being excited for that can take on elements of future tripping, right? Yeah, I think being excited is is totally fine. I think just having some balance, right? Like mm. if you're living out a whole story <laughs> yeah. uh, with this person, then that's that's probably not healthy. A lot of self-help focuses on positive visualization, mm. and it's a technique that a lot of people use and swear by. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of that idea of putting yourself 
in a position where you've accomplished the goal or that goal. So what, what you're saying with future tripping almost runs slightly counter to that because shouldn't you be imagining where you want to be? And if where you want to be is with, I don't know, a bunch of kids in Bali, like if, if that's true to yourself, right? Like not influenced by someone else. Is it bad to think about that? How, how do we balance what I would call the power of positive visualization with the pitfalls of future tripping? Right. So th- that's a great question because manifesting is not about being attached to an outcome, right? So mm. when you're manifesting, you are you can definitely manifest that you are in a loving relationship. And how do you feel when you're in a loving relationship? Oh, this is how healthy love feels like. This is amazing. That's very different from... Um, being attached to this person right. and trying to manifest this relationship with this person that doesn't even has not even you know agreed or consented to being in this reality with you. Yeah, very different. Does that make it? Can you see I, the difference? Well, I think so because the future tripping is really a, becomes about that other person, whereas I think positive visualization is more about your internal feeling, and you're not projecting an outcome with someone specific, you're projecting an outcome about yourself. Exactly. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Because while you were talking about that, I was trying to figure out, you know, okay, I've definitely delved in both and I'm trying to think where, you know, where it's healthy and where it's maybe not so healthy. (laughs) Your work focuses on women, but I feel like so much of this stuff is applicable to men as well. I mean, even just sitting here talking with you, And I know that I've learned a lot, very surprisingly, from comedian Whitney Cummings in this realm. She's one of my favorites. I'm sure I'm not in her key demographic, but so much of like working on yourself, learning about codependency, the way we can trick ourselves in relationships to think that things are healthy when they're not healthy. This is all stuff that guys can learn too. Do you have a lot of men coming to you or is that still like a cultural challenge where men don't want to get into this realm and they actually maybe go towards things like pickup artistry or <laughs> or that other realm, right? Um, I definitely think it's becoming more and more, um, you know, mainstream for, mm-hmm. for men to be looking at you know, self-help or therapy and all that, which is amazing. Um, I still get, you know, a lot more women inquiries, which is why I created boot camps for women first. Mm-hmm. Um, it was Do you really, have a boot camp for men? I don't. It, and it was just a business decision of, of you know, the, the demographics. Mm-hmm. And um, I do want to have a retreat for men uh, at some point. Um, mm. So one day, yeah. Yeah. But you are starting to see it shift a little bit? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Because I'm definitely interested in your book. I haven't read it yet, yeah. but all the things that we've been talking about, I, it, I'm yeah, certainly interested in Yeah, because it's not about a gender. Myself. It's yeah. about your brain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Just as we wrap up here, one thing I want to talk about is dating culture in the age of COVID. And this was largely what I was covering when I told you I had that stretch of a few weeks where I was doing all these media hits. When we look at COVID and how it's kind of isolated us in a lot of ways. It's changed the culture where we're way more tech-based than interpersonal-based. Is COVID and this pandemic, since it's been so protracted, we're going to assume it's going to go into at least the middle of next year, is this going to have an effect on 
how you meet people and dating and relationships. Are people going to, you know, meet on Zoom first before they go on a real date? How do you see dating culture changing as a result of the pandemic? Yeah, great question. I mean, I think meeting on Zoom first is amazing. I used to FaceTime my dates before oh, yeah? I would meet them in person. You were an original. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, because you can tell so much, right? Like you can tell if it's a complete no, right? And then you can can just avoid having to go through that if you know mm. right away. Um, so anyway, yeah, I think it's definitely going to change. I think the pandemic has been the great accelerator of relationships. I've seen hmm. a lot of people who were perpetually single um, start dating their best friend right. and are like completely wowed and like, what What were we thinking, you know, for not like seeing this before? Um, and I've seen uh, couples who, you know, had cracks in the foundation completely fall apart hmm. and so um so it's not good or bad in terms of acceleration it's whatever path it was headed on it kind of yeah I, I think the pandemic had there is a silver lining in dating as well right it's mm -hmm. it's caused people to really examine what's important mm. and so and and also take away a lot of those distractions because the more options you have actually doesn't benefit you right they've done so <laughs> many studies that show that if you have a lot of options and you make a choice, you're going to be less satisfied than if you were presented with less options. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, um, you know, we're still going to see the outcome of, of what happens. But I think this is a time where we can also get to know people on an emotional level and, mm -hmm. and see is their compatibility and values um, before we jump into the chemistry part, right? Because like I know from witnessing the people I've been working with, a lot of them, chemistry controlled them. Mm -hmm. And so they met someone, even if there's red flags, they're just if there's chemistry, they're in it. And three months in, a year in, three years in, then they're in this dark hole that they're trying to crawl out of because they never assessed if the values were there. Yeah. Right. But what if we actually started to get clear on what are the values that are important to me? And does this person even fit into the values and even life vision? And if we can look at that and prioritize that before the chemistry, I think we would have a lot more success in these relationships. Mm -hmm. I love that. To put this all together, let's start with the basics again. We've had this big conversation about dating, coming out of relationships, what you should be looking for, the chemistry compass, attachment theory. When you're on a first date, whether it's on Zoom or it's in person, what type of things should you be trying to find out? Mm. What should you be asking? What should you be looking for? Yeah, great question. I think the very first date, your only intention is two things. Am I having fun? Do I want to see this person again? Mm -hmm. You do not have to ask yourself, is this like the, you know, future father of my kids? Like, are you my soul? Don't think about any of that. That pressure, that energy comes off and it could actually really put out uh, a flame. Mm -hmm. um, so now that we've got that out of the way, the very first date is just meant to connect. Mm -hmm. And so 
leave out these heavy topics. It's not meant for that. It's just meant to build rapport. So keep it light, keep it fun, get to know each other's interests. Um, I don't think you have this big conversation about values and like, do you want children? Like, I mean, you can bring it up lightly, but like, I don't think that this is like that serious thing. Like just see if you can have fun together. I think that's it. Yeah. And then if you can have fun together, amazing. That's like, okay, like if you're you're building a foundation, right? Like, okay, you've just kind of like put the the concrete down. Okay, next state, right? Then you build and you build. And so I think that you have to just look at it as this kind of building of a house and um, not rush into trying to get all these answers right away because it just creates so much pressure and it takes the fun out of it. Yeah. And then it, I think it also makes you have expectations and then this huge disappointment like, oh, like oh, that sucked. Well, if you just focused on having fun and being curious, like even if there wasn't a spark or even if you don't see if any future with the person, like you could probably still get something out of that interaction mm-hmm. just as a human being meeting another human being. Yeah. I guess I find that fascinating. Because I'm realizing I do this all wrong, but mostly because, you know, you've emphasized this idea of compatibility and values. And so wouldn't you want to get all of that out up front? I'm not necessarily saying like a first date dump where it's just like, you know, answer these 10 questions about where you stand on certain values or if you want kids or whatever else. But shouldn't you be out front, like out and open with what you want, what you're looking for, what what you value? Yeah, I don't think that there's any one way, right? Like, I I personally, I used to just do a big dump in the very beginning in terms of, like, really try to get the information. And I think that people felt like they were in a job interview with me mm. um, or they're being psychoanalyzed. And that's just a buzz if, kill. If you're on a date with me, you are being psychoanalyzed, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> but it's it's a, it's just such a total buzzkill, right? Yeah, like no. and so, you know, in the beginning, it is that little spark. It is it's so sensitive. Like it can actually you can keep fanning it and it can grow into a flame. You can nurture it into that, or you could just put it right out. And I think we're meeting potential partners all the time, right? We're mm-hmm. either just dismissing them way too soon or we're putting up too much pressure. But if you're like diehard, you're like, I want to make sure that the person I meet um doesn't do drugs. Totally fine. Like mm-hmm. bring it up, right? Um, so I don't I don't think that there has you have to follow these rules. I generally say keep it light in the beginning. Also, there- so you can be a narc but not a psychoanalyst. <laughs> yes, Is that yes. what you're saying? <laughs> but also, people, you know, even like. In a job interview, you can say, like, what's your greatest flaw? My greatest flaw is I'm a perfectionist. Like, there's so much difference in what you say versus Mm -hmm. how you actually are. And some of it is you actually have to take time to just see, are there consistencies in this person's behavior, right? Right. This person can say, like, oh, my values is, like, generosity and kindness. And then date two, you see them, you know, not tip the waiter and then tell you that they owe you an extra $8 because you had a bigger slice of pizza like you're like wait but you just said your values are generosity yeah so you you know like there isn't a shortcut you can't just figure it all up on on date one and be super efficient about it yeah. unfortunately there still is some dance and mystery um that's at play and that's kind of the exciting part of yeah. it right 
I love this. This was such a fun chat. Very quickly, sort of like an elevator pitch type thing to the singles that are listening out there, especially those that maybe are in their 30s. You know, they're seeing their friends get married. Some of their friends are starting to have kids. What is your advice to them, especially if maybe they're resigned on dating or they think dating is really hard or they've just had a rough go? What would you say to them in in a minute? Conduct a dating experiment. Go on 10 dates with 10 different types of people. Date someone who's five years or 10 years older than you, five years or 10 years younger than you, except if you're like 20, then that's illegal. (laughs) Don't do that. (laughs) Um, And your only job is to see if you can have fun and be curious. And you are just building your muscle and skill set for building connection. And that is it. And you will be so surprised that what you thought was your type might shift and you might be drawn to people that you never would have given a chance to. And it does just, I think, help you open up. And if you don't put any expectations that you're going to meet the one in those 10 dates, it actually just you know, keeps it really light. So mm. conduct a dating experiment. Let me know how it goes. <laughs> I love it. And on that, where do people find you to let you know how it goes? Where do they find the book? Here's your call to action. Uh, renewbreakupbootcamp.com. You can find me on Insta at Miss Amy Chan. If you have questions, DM me. I'll be happy to answer. And my book, Breakup Bootcamp, The Science of Rewiring Your Heart, is available at all bookstores starting December 1st. Love it. Amy, this was so much fun. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Thank you so much. And hopefully we get to chat again. Maybe we can do like a a revisitation of some of this stuff and I'll let you know how it worked in my life. Yeah, when you do your 10 dating experiment. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) People, she is a dynamo relationship expert. Her book, Breakup Bootcamp, The Science of Rewiring Your Heart is out December 1st. 2020, in case you're listening to this way ahead in the future, make sure you pick it up. A modern day Carrie Bradshaw from right here in Vancouver. She is Amy Chan, and I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. <laughs>